Hello and welcome to our London History Podcast, where we share our love of London, its people, places and history. This podcast is designed for you to learn things about London that most Londoners don't even know, all in 20 minutes. I am your host, Hazel Baker, Qualified London Tour Guide and CEO of LondonGuidedWalks.co.uk. Show notes plus photos and recommended reading can be found on each associated episode's webpage. Simply go to LondonGuidedWalks.co.uk forward slash podcast. Don't forget, if you enjoy what we do, then please rate and review. It warms the cockles of my heart to read your appreciation of this labour of love. Get that cup of tea, put your feet up and enjoy. Joining me in the studio today is Philippa Vincent Conley, an historian, writer and published author of historical fiction and non-fiction. We're going to be talking today about Disability and the Tudors, which is also the title of her latest book, the first of a series of disabilities in specific eras and benefits from Philippa's own experience of living with cerebral palsy. So hello, Philippa. Hi, lovely to be here. This is a very big subject, not just on a historical point, but also how we see and treat disabilities and decide on what kind of society we want to live in. So you you, you mentioned um, about uh, your own experience with the cerebral palsy, but what was it about the Tudors in particular that you wanted to write about? Well, I've always loved history. I was dragged around every stately home within an hour's drive radius from my home in Wimborne, Dorset, when I was a child. My mother used to go to work at the weekends and my grandparents used to take me everywhere. (laughs) We'd go to Ethelhampton House, we'd go to Blenheim, we'd go to all sorts of different places. And I would look at these paintings of all these wonderful people in these glorious clothes and I'd think, well... There's nobody there that represents me as a disabled person. And I thought, why is that? And I thought, well, why am I down here looking up at them and I'm not up there being looked at by somebody down here where I am? And it sort of got me thinking from a really early age. And I was fascinated, like everybody is, with the drama surrounding Henry VIII and his six wives and, you know, him executing two of the the women that he supposedly adored got me thinking well why did he do that and then you start doing a bit of research and you start reading books and so I started off with Jean Plady like a lot of people did in the 70s and early 80s just reading copious amounts of books on them even they were they were fiction and also the Tudors looking at the evidence they were very open very inclusive and they thought about disabled people as just like everybody else in some respects they treated it like an everyday occurrence, and which is why a lot of detail isn't recorded and they hadn't categorised disabled people. So they literally wrote down what they saw. So if they saw somebody who was a cripple, they would write cripple or lame or blind or deaf. Mm-hmm. And all these isms we have now and all these syndromes we have now weren't written about because they didn't even exist in the way that they exist now. Yes, they existed, but... They hadn't, we didn't have the medical knowledge back then to be able to relate to that, to describe it. So you were just categorized as either having some sort of intellectual disability, learning disability, mental disability, or even madness. 
Mm-hmm. And that and that's how it was. It was very, very simply defined, which makes the research really, really difficult because you can type in those keywords into a, a, a database or a research platform and not a lot comes up. That's the difficulty with researching disability history, especially in the early modern era. It gets easier when you're talking about maybe the Georgians the Victorians, don't get me started on the Victorians, because that's when it goes terribly wrong and terribly pear-shaped. And why we carry around, or society carries around, the attitudes towards the disabled that it's got today, we have namely the Victorians to blame for that. So, Philippa, tell us a bit about Jane Fool. Yeah, basically, we don't know anything about her, what age she was when she was born or how she came to be in Amberlynn's household but she certainly was in Amberlynn's household because there's a painting of her anybody that visits Hampton Court Palace can go to the haunted gallery just at the side of where the chapel royal entrance is they can see this particular painting of the family of Henry VIII you've got Henry sat there in the middle and all his finery with Jane Seymour, with Prince Edward, and then the two princesses either side of them. But on the far side of the paintings, you've got these two people who weren't blood relatives. You've got Will Summer, who was a companion to Henry VIII, who was uh, deemed what they'd call a natural fool, who had a learning disability. And then you had on the far left-hand side, if you're facing the painting, a woman dressed up in foreign clothing, who um, was Jane Full. And for our listeners, I'll include a link to the image so you can actually see the painting for yourself. Jane has got a shaven head and a coif, a cotton linen coif on. So um, we think the reason why she might have had her head shaved is to help prevent her from getting head lice, possibly, or a hygiene problem, and also to, uh, to make her feel as if she was closer to God. You know, from a religious point of view, she was a conduit for the Holy Spirit from for God to speak through. Same with Will Summer. These people weren't court jesters. Jane Fool, who was in Anne Boleyn's household, who had a learning disability, she was in Anne Boleyn's coronation procession, and she just shouted out, why aren't you cheering for the Queen? Why aren't you saying God save the Queen? Well, somebody with a learning disability has got no filter. So they're just going to say exactly what's on their mind, which is what Jane Fall actually did. And because I've got that understanding, I can see exactly that whole scenario playing out and why that happened and why she said what she said. Because they spoke the truth, like I said before, because they had no filter and they said exactly what was on their minds, they were... They were prized for their companionship and friendship because they had no agenda about getting up the greasy pole of power mm-hmm. in court like every other courtier and noble. So that was the difference. And that was why Henry and people like Anne liked these natural falls closer to them, because there was no there was no barrier there for there to be a problem in the, in the relationship, in the friendship. Mm-hmm. So they, So the king could also say exactly what he wanted to will summer as well which I found absolutely lovely these people were prized for their honesty and the fact that they spoke the truth something worth weight it's gold if you think of a a position being you know king or queen um or indeed a politician dare I say um, that you you don't have any friends 
Mm. The people that know you are always wanting something from you. So it's very lonely existence because not only are they wanting something from you, but you can't actually get anything from them for with a mm. true worth. Yeah. And what actually upsets me is that all that thinking more or less is shunted aside as soon as disabled people become in, uh, institutionalised after the Industrial Revolution mm. because they're seen as not giving anything back to society because they can't do these mechanised jobs and repetitive things time after time after time. The whole situation with, with disabled people completely changes. Mm. Uh, and that's what's so sad, but also that's what's so enlightening about the Tudors with disabled people is that they were actually like this. You know, that they did hold them in high esteem. But also, on the other hand, from a religious point of view, if a child was born with a severe deformity, for example, then, you know, what's the mother looked at while she was pregnant? You know, what's the, what have the parents been involved in? Mm. You know, is it slightly satanic? Is it slightly witchcraft? Is it, you know, there's all these ideas of superstition would creep in as well. So it's, it's a very weird seesaw of attitudes during that time. But then you also had the monasteries who would take in disabled people who couldn't be looked after in their families or communities. And then once the Reformation came along and, and Cromwell swept all that support away, hmm. you know, those, those people couldn't go, really go anywhere. He did start to bring in the poor laws. There were almshouses built. There were leper hospitals. There was bedlam for the mad, things like that. There was a system of, of welfare slowly being brought in, but it didn't really replace the monasteries in their entirety. So, you know, it's all very interesting from a social point of view as well. Yeah, I hadn't actually made that connection before. That's a really good point. That's, I mean, it's, and there are individuals that are really interesting to learn about. I mean, Thomas More, for example, took in um, a, a fool uh, with a learning disability called Henry Pattinson, who actually looked very similar to Henry VIII from the portrait. If you look at the, the family portrait of Thomas More, Henry Pattinson stood there in all his finery in gold clothes, you know, gold coloured clothing and everything, looking very resplendent a bit like the king and you know he was included in the family like a family member sat round at meal times with them got involved in political discussions you know actually at one point did actually advise thomas more to sign the oath so he didn't get thrown in the tower and was executed but obviously thomas more didn't listen to him at that point that was an educated um henry patterson to a degree Mm. And that and that was another way that religion helped people in the Tudor period because it was all about charitable giving and all of that. And, you know, you'd get to heaven through good works and doing things for people less fortunate than you. The religious as aspect of it had so many different connotations for disabled people at that time, which is, is really interesting. And then you had people like uh, Queen Claude, for example, not English, but she was waited on by Anne Boleyn before Anne Boleyn came back to join the English court. And she had um, scoliosis. She had one leg shorter than the other. She had a strombosis, which was um, a defect with her eyes. You know, she had all sorts of minor disabilities and she was 
quite overweight as well. And they did actually take the mickey out of her in the French court to a degree with how she looked and everything because she wasn't really, really fashionable. And But she was very pious and very religious and she managed to actually have seven children for the French king. So she didn't do too badly at all. She did a job. She did her job, exactly. And then you've got people like Lady Mary Grey, who's the sister of the of Queen Jane the First, who was, you know, obviously the nine days queen, who was short in stature, had scoliosis. There were other people um who had scoliosis as well. Some people will argue that's not really a disability. But then I would say it depends how that condition affects your everyday life and your ability to do normal everyday activities. Mm-hmm. And that's what I based my description of disability on, because you could argue that being infertile could also be a disability in the Tudor period, because if you couldn't produce an heir, then you didn't get very far in life either. So, you know, there's all sorts of different ways that you can look at it. But I basically looked at the Equality Act of 2010 and looked at the descriptors of what that says about disability. And it's all about how far can you lead a normal life and what stops you and doesn't stop you. And that's what I looked at with the Tudors mm-hmm. in comparison to try and get sort of a benchmark. So, Well, that's an interesting way, because even like to live a normal life, like what you were saying about the Victorians, normal life was very different back in mm. Tudor time than it was you know, in the post-industrial revolution. With, yeah. the, with the Victorians, like I said, you were just put in institutions and out of sight, out of mind. If you couldn't contribute in any way financially to society, mm-hmm. then they didn't want to, to know, basically. And if they couldn't cure you, then that was the best place for you. You were separated from your family. You weren't allowed to um, be living with anyone of the opposite sex in case you you had children, had sex, which they didn't want. It was all the start of the eugenics movement. Mm. So that's where things things obviously really, really changed there as well. And, you know, talking about the Victorians, I'm starting to write a book, Disability in the Victorians, actually, to continue w- with the topic. And I'm sure I'm going to find that a lot more of a challenge, not because of the sources or, or anything like that, but because of the attitudes. Mm-hmm. Because I myself um, was institutionalised from the age th- age three up until nine years old, when my parents literally lived ten minutes down the road, and I was at boarding school mm. with other disabled children, and who were far more disabled than I was. So it was always me as the sort of healthy one who'd be running down the corridor in the middle of the night trying to find a nurse to help somebody who'd fallen out of bed or needed to mm-hmm, get mm-hmm. to the loo at night and things like that. You know, lights out at 6.30, no TV. You know, and that was in the mid-1970s. It was still yeah. very much Victorianised then, um, which is why I've got such um, an activist head on me. I try to stay out of the political sort of thing of it, but it's very difficult, you know, because you you want to make things better. I want to make things better, not just for myself, but for other disabled people like me, so that we don't always come up against the same barriers all the time with ableism, discrimination and all, all of that. I think what's nice, especially if you're talking about the, the Tudors and them being uh, more accepting and 
finding roles and responsibilities that people could do, it reminds people that there are other ways. There yeah. isn't just one way of doing something. Exactly. Um, so that that is nice. Now, now w- with the fall of Anne Boleyn, um, <laughs> and now I, I, I've uh, recently researching um, about Greenwich Palace myself. So 1536, and um, bef- her last shopping trip, she'd bought some um, material and some some frills and and that, including for I think Jane Fool. She'd bought yellow silk for Jane Fool for a gown, green silk for coifs, all sorts of things. And, and that's that's another reason why we can see that Jane Fool actually existed in Anne Boleyn's household beside the coronation incident, because there are these accounts of, of items being bought for Jane. And that's another another reason why we can realise that Jane Fall had some sort of disability because she didn't have the capabilities to buy and order her own clothing and look after money herself. Uh, the Tudor disabled people, if they were in a wealthy family, would have what we'd call keepers, our equivalent of carers. And that's that's how the Tudors used to do it, which is very sort of straightforward, forward-thinking, you know, and quite normal when you mm-hmm. when you when you look at it, because although Anne had responsibility for Jane Fall being in her household, she also made that the job of some of her other ladies in waiting, for example, or her ha- members of her household to actually look after Jane with with her. Yeah, which, you know, it's really good. And and what happened to Jane uh, when Anne was taken to the tower? She was passed from pillar to post, bless her heart, Mm. to um, Princess Mary, first of all, who looked after her. And the reason why we know that is because Princess Mary in her household accounts pays for Jane's hair to be shaved on several occasions, uh, pays for medicine for Jane when she's not well. Mm-hmm. Then later on, when Catherine Parr comes on the scene, the final sixth queen, Catherine Parr buys Jane Fall a flock of geese to herd around the gardens at Whitehall Palace or Hampton Court to give Jane Fall some responsibility and to keep her occupied, which I think is absolutely wonderful. I what bet a, she loved that as well. What a lovely thing to do. You could imagine her tying all these beautiful ribbons around their necks and giving them names and all that kind of thing. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I can. So, and then, and then she completely disappears from the records. We don't know when she died, where she went, what happened to her at all, which is, you know, really, really sad. And, you know, because we've only got those household accounts and, and that particular painting to show that she existed. In yeah. life, you know. And so, what, what about Will Summer then? Do we know any more about him? Oh gosh, we know a lot more about Will because he stayed in the court of Henry VIII throughout Henry's reign, and he also stayed in the court of um, his successor, Edward, Prince Edward, who became King Edward, obviously. And he, um, Will Summer, died just as Queen Elizabeth I ascended the throne so he'd had a flipping good innings um and obviously you know he couldn't continue that kind of relationship with the monarchs as he got older because he 
was had to be cared for a lot more. But Henry certainly cared for him in the in the fact that he ordered lots of clothes for him. He didn't dress him as a servant. He had quite expensive velvets bought for him, but he wasn't dressed as a noble. He had leather work for horses bought for him, stirrups bought for him. He was taken on to progresses. He and there is an account of Will Summer actually following Henry VIII's funeral funeral procession and being in that right at the very front. So, you know, he was a big part of the king's life. And I think that's wonderful because it shows such an openness from a man that you wouldn't have thought would have been that forgiving and that encouraging and that supportive, would you? Oh, but maybe that's just a, a reflection on um, on Henry and that we've not actually thought about that before. Yeah. Thanks very much, Philippa. To our listeners, thanks very much for joining us again for episode 80. Full transcript and a link to Philippa's books, etc. are on our show notes, londonguidedwalks.co.uk forward slash podcast and click on episode 80. 80. That's all for now. See you next time. <laughs>